Chapters 36 and 37 of The Angel of Terror. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. The Angel of Terror by Edgar Wallace. Chapter 36. Mr. Briggerland did not enthuse over any form of sport or exercise. His hobbies were confined to the handsome motorcycle, which not only provided him with recreation, but had on occasion been of assistance in the carrying out of important plans formulated by his daughter. He stopped at Mentoni for breakfast and climbed the hill to Grimaldi after passing the frontier station at Pont St. Louis. He had all the morning before him and there was no great hurry. At Ventimille, he had a second breakfast, for the morning was keen, and his appetite was good. He loafed through the little town, with a cigar between his teeth, bought some curios at a shop, and continued his leisurely journey. His objective was San Remo. There was a train at one o'clock, which would bring him and his machine back to Monte Carlo, where it was his intention to spend the remainder of the afternoon at pont st louis he had had a talk with the customs officer no monsieur there are very few travelers on the road in the morning said the official it is not until late in the afternoon that traffic begins times have changed on the riviera and so many people go to cannes the old road is now almost deserted at eleven o'clock mr briggerland came to a certain part of the road and found a hiding place for his motorcycle a small plantation of olive trees on the hillside. Incidentally, it was an admirable resting place, for from here he commanded an extensive view of the western road. Lydia's journey had been no less enjoyable. She, too, had stopped at Mentoni to explore the town, and had left Pont St. Louis an hour after Mr. Briggerland had passed. The road to San Remo runs under the shadow of steep hills, through a bleak stretch of country from which even the industrious peasantry of northern Italy cannot win a livelihood. Save for isolated patches of cultivated land, the hills are bare and menacing. With these gaunt plateaus on one side and the rock-strewn seashore on the other, there was little to hold the eye save an occasional glimpse of the Italian town in the far distance. There was a wild uncouthness about the scenery which awed the girl. Sometimes the car would be running so near the sea level that the spray of the waves hit the windows. Sometimes it would climb over an outjutting headland and she would look down upon a bouldered beach a hundred feet below. It was on the crest of a headland that the car stopped. Here the road ran out in a semicircle so that from where she sat she could not see its continuation either before or behind. Ahead, it slipped around the shoulder of a high and overhanging mass of rock, through which the road must have been cut. Behind, it dipped down to a cove hidden from sight. "'There is the lover's chair, mademoiselle,' said Morden. Half a dozen feet beneath the road level was a broad shelf of rock. A few stone steps led down, and she followed them. The lover's chair was carved in the face of the rock, and she sat down to view the beauty of the scene. The solitude, the stillness which only the lazy waves broke, the majesty of the setting, brought a strange peace to her. 
beyond the edge of the ledge of the cliff fell sheer to the water and she shivered as she stepped back from her inspection morton did not see her go he sat on the running board of his car his pale face between his hands to pray his own gloomy thoughts there must be a development he told himself he was beginning to get uneasy and for the first time he doubted the sincerity of the woman who had been to him as a goddess he did not hear mr briggerland for the dark man was light of foot when he came around the shoulder of the hill morden's back was toward him suddenly the chauffeur looked round monsieur he stammered and would have risen but briggerland laid his hand on his shoulder do not rise francis he said pleasantly i'm afraid i was hasty last night monsieur it was i who was hasty said morden huskily it was unpardonable nonsense briggerland patted the man's shoulder what is that boat out there a man of war francis francis morden turned his head toward the sea and briggerland pointed the ivory-handled pistol he had held behind his back and shot him dead the report of the revolver thrown down by the rocks came to lydia like a clap of thunder at first she thought it was a tire burst and hurried up the steps to see mr briggerland was standing with his back to the car at his feet was the tumbled body of morden mr Brig she gasped and she saw the revolver in his hand with a cry she almost flung herself down the steps as the revolver exploded the bullet ripped her hat from her head and she flung up her hands thinking she had been struck then the dark face showed over the parapet and again the revolver was presented she stared for a second into his benevolent eyes and then something hit her violently and she staggered back and dropped over the edge of the shelf down straight down into the sea below end of chapter 36 chapter 37 probably jean briggerland never gave a more perfect representation of shocked surprise than when old jaggs announced that he was jack glover mr glover she said incredulously if you will be kind enough to release my hands said jack savagely i will convince you jean all meekness obeyed and presently he stood up with a groan you've nearly blinded me he said turning to the glass if i'd known it was you don't make me laugh he snapped of course you knew who it was he took off the wig and peeled the beard from his face was that very painful she asked sympathetically and jack snorted how was i to know it was you she demanded virtuously indignant i thought you were a wicked old man you thought nothing of the sort miss briggerland said jack you knew who i was and you guessed why i had taken on this disguise i was not many yards from you when it suddenly dawned upon you that i could not sleep at lydia meredith's flat unless i went there in the guise of an old man why should you want to sleep at her flat at all she asked innocently it doesn't seem to me to be a very proper ambition that is an unnecessary question and i'm wasting my time when i answer you said jack sternly i went there to save her life 
to protect her against your murderous plots. My murderous plots, she repeated aghast. You surely don't know what you're saying. I know this, he said, and his face was not pleasant to see. I have sufficient evidence to secure the arrest of your father and possibly yourself. For months I have been working on that first providential accident of yours, the rich Australian who died with such remarkable suddenness. I may not get you in the Meredith case, and I may not be able to jail you for your attacks on Mrs. Meredith, but I have enough evidence to hang your father for the earlier crime. Her face was blank, expressionless. Never before had she been brought up short with such a threat as the man was uttering, nor had she ever been in danger of detection. And all the time she was eyeing him so steadily, not a muscle of her face moving. Her mind was groping back into the past, examining every detail of the crime he had mentioned, seeking for some flaw in the carefully prepared plan which had brought a good man to a violent and untimely end. "'That kind of bluff doesn't impress me,' she said at last. "'You're in a poor way when you have to invent crimes to attach to me.' "'We'll go into that later. Where is Lydia?' he said shortly. "'I tell you I don't know, except that she has gone out for a drive.' I expect her back very soon. Is your father with her? She shook her head. No, father went out early. I don't know who gave you authority to cross-examine me. Why, Jack Glover, you have all the importance of a French examining magistrate. She smiled. You may learn how important they are soon, he said significantly. Where is your chauffeur, Morden? He has gone, too. In fact, he is driving Lydia. Why? she asked with a little tightening of heart. She had only just been in time, she thought, so they had associated Morden with the forgery. His first words confirmed this suspicion. There is a warrant for Morden, which will be executed as soon as he returns, said Jack. We have been able to trace him in London, and also the woman who presented the check. We know his movements from the time he left Nice by airplane for Paris to the time he returned to Nice. The people who changed the money for him will swear to his identity. If he expected to startle her, he was disappointed. She raised her eyebrows. I can't believe it is possible. Morden was such an honest man, she said. We trusted him implicitly, and never once did he betray our trust. Now, Mr. Glover she said coolly. Might I suggest that an interview with a gentleman in my bedroom is not calculated to increase my servant's respect for me? Will you go downstairs and wait until I come? You'll not attempt to leave this house? He said, and she laughed. Really, you're going on like one of those invaluable detectives one reads about in the popular magazines, she said a little contemptuously. You have no authority whatever to keep me from leaving this house, and nobody knows that better than you. But you needn't be afraid. Sit on the stairs, if you like, till I come down. When he had gone, she rang the bell for her maid and handed her an envelope. I shall be in the saloon talking to Mr. Glover, she said in a low voice. 
I want you to bring this in and say that you found it in the hall. Yes, miss, said the woman. Jean proceeded leisurely to her toilet. In the struggle, her dress had been torn, and she changed it for a pale green silk gown. And Jack, pacing in the hall below, was on the point of coming up to discover if she had made her escape when she sailed serenely down the stairs. I should like to know one thing, Mr. Glover, she said as she went into the saloon. What do you intend on doing? What is your immediate plan? Are you going to spirit Lydia away from us? Of course, I know you're in love with her and all that sort of thing. His face went pink. I am not in love with Mrs. Meredith, he lied. Don't be silly, she said practically. Of course you're in love with her. My first job is to get that money back, and you are going to help me, he said. Of course I'm going to help you, she agreed. If Morden has been such a scoundrel, he must suffer the consequence. I'm sure that you're too clever to have made any mistake. Poor Morden, I wonder what made him do it, because he's such a good friend of Lydia's. And seriously, Mr. Glover, I do think that Lydia is being indiscreet. "'You made that remark before,' he said quietly. "'Now perhaps you'll explain what you mean.' She shrugged her shoulders. "'They are always about together. "'I saw them strolling on the lawn last night till quite a late hour, "'and I was so scared lest Mrs. Cole Mortimer noticed it too.' "'Which means that Mrs. Cole Mortimer did not notice it. "'You're clever, Jean.' Even as you invent, you make preparations to refute any evidence that the other side can produce. I don't believe a word you say. There was a knock at the door, and the maid entered bearing a letter on the salver. This was addressed to you, miss, she said. It was on the hall table. Didn't you see it? Why, no, said Jean in surprise. She took the letter, looked down at the address, and opened it. He saw a look of amazement and horror come to her face. "'Good God!' gasped Jean. "'What is it?' he said, springing up. She stared at the letter again and from the letter to him. "'Read it,' she said in a hollow voice. "'Dear Mademoiselle, I have returned from London and have confessed to Madame Meredith that I have forged her name and have drawn one hundred thousand pounds from her bank, and now I have learnt that Madame Meredith loves me. There is only one end to this, that which you see. Jack read the letter twice. It is in his writing, too, he muttered. It's impossible, incredible. I tell you, I've had Mrs. Meredith under my eyes all the time she has been here. Is there a letter from her? He asked suddenly. But no, it is impossible, impossible. I haven't been into her room. Will you come up with me? He followed her up the stairs and into Lydia's big bedroom. And the first thing that caught his eye was a sealed letter on a table near the bed. He picked it up. It was addressed to him in Lydia's handwriting. And feverishly, he tore it open. His face when he had finished reading, was as white as hers had been. "'Where have they gone?' he asked. "'They went to San Remo.' "'By car?' "'Of course.' 
Without a word, he turned and ran down the stairs and out of the house. The taxi that had brought him in the role of Jags had gone, but down the road, a dozen yards away, was the car he had hired on the day he came to Monte Carlo. He gave instructions to the driver and jumped in. The car sped through Mentoni, stopped only the briefest while at the customs barrier, whilst Jack pursued his inquiries. Yes, a lady had passed, but she had not returned. How long ago? Perhaps an hour, perhaps less. At top speed, the big car thundered along the sea road, twisting and turning, diving into valleys and climbing steep headlands, and then, rounding a corner, Jack saw the car and a little crowd about it. His heart turned to stone as he leaped to the road. He saw the backs of two Italian zondons, and, pushing aside the little knot of idlers, he came into the center of the group and stopped. Morden lay on his face in a pool of blood, and one of the policemen was holding an ivory-handled revolver. "'It was with this that the crime was committed,' he said in florid Italian. Three of the chambers are empty. Now, at whom were the other two discharged?' Jack reeled and gripped the mudguard of the car for support. Then his eyes strayed to the opening in the wall, which ran on the seaward side of the road. He walked to the parapet and looked over, and the first thing he saw was a torn hat and a veil, and he knew it was Lydia's. End of chapter 37